Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog and this Power Hour blogcast. It's actually Power Hour number three, and it's a great one. My name is Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change, and it's great to welcome you back uh, to the Power at Work blog. As you know, the Power Hour brings you top labor experts from around the country uh, with a lot of different backgrounds, and it invites them to comment on the top labor issues of the day. And the way we make sure it's not just the issues that I think are the top labor issues is the panelists and I work out what we think we should talk about during this hour. Uh, so we're gonna get a diversity of opinion as well as a diversity of topics. And I think you're gonna like it a lot. We're each gonna take responsibility for setting up one or two of the topics. Uh, and we're gonna each jump in on each of the topics because man, there's a lot to say. Um, I know it's gonna come out right, because I've got two old friends and terrific top labor experts with us here today. It's my pleasure to introduce them to you. If you don't know them already, you may well know them. I don't know. If you're watching this broadcast, it's a good bet that you know them already. Uh, first is my friend Ruben Garcia, a professor of law and co-director of the Workplace Law Program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the William S. Boyd School of Law. Uh, Ruben has such a long list of credentials, I, I, I hesitate to even get started on him, but I'll mention two. Uh, in October of 2022, he was elected as a fellow of the American Law Institute. But three years before that, he was elected as a fellow of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, which means Ruben knows the secret handshake that I have not been allowed to learn. They don't share it with me. I can't. There's like a special room you can get into in that college. I'm not allowed into Teach it. you after. Oh, thanks very much. Thank <laughs> you. Um, our guest is Mark Gaston Pierce, uh, a visiting professor and executive director of the Workers' Rights Institute at Georgetown University Law Center here in Washington. Uh, he is best known as a former chairman and member of the National Labor Relations Board. He was appointed uh, by President Barack Obama for two terms. He finished up his service on, on, uh, in April, August, I'm sorry, August of 2018. Actually, I was wrong when I said he's best known for the NLRB. He's actually best known as a phenomenal artist. So if you haven't had a chance to see any of Mark's art, you've really, you've missed out. So I take a, if there's an opportunity, take a look at his Instagram account, take a look at what he posts in other uh, locations on the web. Uh, Mark, like me, used to teach at Cornell University School of Industrial uh, and labor relations. He's also an alumnus of my alma mater, Cornell University. He began as a field attorney and later as a district trial specialist at the National Labor Relations Board. And subsequent to that, he started a union side labor law firm known as Creighton Pierce, Johnson and Giro. Mark, so great to have you here. Thank you. So let's jump in uh, to topic number one, uh, and this is my topic to introduce because it's about politics. And uh, anybody who watches these broadcasts know how much I love politics. Uh, so it's about the politics of labor and labor in politics. Um, it's not a surprise to anybody who's watching this broadcast that unions are very popular in America right now, and uh, politicians on the center left and even some on the right are trying very hard to share the spotlight with the labor movement and particularly with worker, worker activism that we're seeing in the streets, visiting picket lines, things like that. Um, we even saw President Trump and Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who's about as conservative 
uh, a a member of the Congress as you can possibly be. They went to or made an effort, pretended to make an effort on behalf of auto workers during the UAW strike. Um, but I think it's also safe to say that a lot of mainstream Republicans still are quite pro-business and, and therefore anti-union. Uh, president Biden recently became the first president to visit a picket line. But the question is whether or not that rhetorical support that some politicians are giving to the labor movement now is actually going to turn into policy that benefits workers and their unions. And also, how much is the labor movement going to matter in the 2024 election? There, the AFL-CIO and a number of unions, almost two dozen unions, have already endorsed President Biden and Vice President Harris for re-election. Is that going to be enough to swing the election their way? Uh, let me just offer a few of my own thoughts, and then I'll turn to uh, to you, Mark, and then to you, Ruben. Um, uh, you know, the, the labor movement matters tremendously, not merely because they provide what what an, an old leader of one, my union used to say used to describe as money marbles and chalk, meaning all the things you need in order to make a a, a a a campaign go. They provide money, they provide volunteers, they provide infrastructure, they provide uh, systems, they provide communications channels, they provide surrogates, they provide a lot of things that campaigns need. So getting the endorsement of the AFL-CIO and a lot of unions really, really, truly matters, but they matter for another reason. And that is uh, some number of unions appeal to and represent the base of the Democratic Party, African-American voters, Latino voters, young voters, um, women uh, voters. But there's also a large population of unions. I'm thinking of the building trades and some of the industrial unions, but there are many others that represent white working class voters who have in large part, abandoned the Democratic Party. I wouldn't say completely, but a majority of them are now voting Republican. Um, and unions like the building trades can communicate not merely with their own members who fit into that category of non-college white working class voters, and they also have a lot of non-college African-American and Latino members, but they're also communicating with their families, they're communicating with their communities, they're talking about issues that matter in those communities like jobs and wages and opportunities like and successes that the president has had, like the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. So in that way, I think the labor movement really can matter. But I don't think we should delude ourselves into believing that all of a sudden everybody in the in the political world is a big supporter of the labor movement. There's still rabid opposition to things like the PRO Act or any other kind of pro-union, pro-worker legislation. It's it's unimaginable to me that any time in the near future, we're going to see legislated labor law reform, at least at the federal level. At the state level, I think there's some opportunities, but I think at the federal level, I think it's highly unlikely. Okay, there's my, my opening screed. Mark, what do you think? Labor and politics, politics of labor, is the labor movement going to be able to deliver the election for President Biden? And is all of this rhetoric that we're hearing about how wonderful unions are, is it going to last? And does it really matter when when people go into that voting booth? Well, thanks for the big question. <laughs> will, will the labor movement be able to deliver the election? I don't think the labor movement by itself can do that. There are so many other than dynamics going on in order to make that determination. But with respect to being able to provide a solid base of labor support, 
uh, the labor movement is proceeding in a way that provides a demonstration of its power. Um, as you as you recall, UAW withheld its its support of uh, President Biden while all the other unions fell in line. Uh, Sean Fain made no bones about stating that that doesn't mean he's for 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 Trump, but he didn't want to be taken taken for granted. A lot of constituencies, Democratic constituencies, constituencies that have been historically been considered voting for Democrats are now feeling that they do not want to be taken for granted and they have to make a point. Um, the UAW's point was, look, you're going to drop all of this money towards towards innovation, electric cars, so forth. This is a seminal period, period for us as workers. What are you going to do about us? How are you going to ensure that we're going to be protected I know you're you're the union friendly president and you're out there glad handing talking about that, but you're gonna have to put your energies where your mouth is. And so unions are calling that to task. And I think the point that you make, Seth, is a good one, and that is if infrastructure is being delivered and that is equating to to jobs and the kind of innovations that are being introduced works out to the betterment of workers in terms of their stability, then unions will be able to make inroads among its constituents, its, its, its members who, as you say, are members that have gone in so many different directed directions motivated by things like, like the, uh, the Republican program and things like just just the uh, the uh, outlandish image of 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 Trump has attracted uh, folks that you wouldn't have imagined. Yeah. So, Ruben, I want you to get in on this, but you you live and work in a city and a state where the labor movement really really matters to politics. Maybe I think arguably the most powerful force at least in democratic politics in Nevada. And let me just say, I pronounced it right this time. I pronounced it wrong the last time I talked about it. But in Nevada is the Culinary Workers Union and the other unions affiliated with Unite Here. They, they're they huge and they really matter. So from that perspective, what do you think labor and politics and the politics of labor nowadays? Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with the two of you and um, to talk about Labor and politics, I mean, I think you really have to start with where the body politic is right now. And I think you have to look at these uh, warning signs uh, throughout the polls and throughout the economy, uh, or at least the, the way people are feeling about the economy. And you really have to say that uh, labor, not just the Unite Here or the hospitality workers, but um, all unions have a, a lot of work to do uh, in terms of uh, getting the word across to their members um, about what the issues are and um, also what the stakes are, right? So in Nevada, I mean, that is done by, in the hospitality industry, by the Culinary Workers Union, Local 226, and they have a very good track record of uh, doing worker education and mobilization that has meant this state, you know, has meant many uh, victories in this state politically, right? 
Um, so a lot of that model, I think, uh, probably needs to be exported throughout the country very quickly um, because it is, as I said, a very, uh, you know, ominous signs in terms of the way people are feeling about the economy and even in this state, uh, the way people are feeling about the way things are going, right? So whether it's um, in the hospitality industry or the auto industry and, the, and as you said, the different kinds of, of uh, moves to try and um, make people worry about the future uh, and technology and the stability of their jobs, um, you know, the, the unions and their political uh, mobilization have to talk to people about things like the courts and the NLRB and legislation, right? That's not happening, right? And, and so I know we're gonna talk about that shortly, but um, those are the things, of course, that people aren't feeling immediately, right? They are, they're feeling the inf inflation or they're feeling um, wage stagnation, but they're not feeling the uh, changes at the NLRB or the uh, changes in the, in the courts, right? So, so that's really, it's really up to the, to the, you know, unions like Unite Here and the UAW and, of course, in the public sector, the uh, American Federation of Teachers and all, all other kinds of, of public and private sector unions uh, to get out and, and talk to their members about what's going on and what's at stake. I think that's, that's, that is the key point, is that unions communicate with their members and they try to help them to understand what is important to them as workers, as whatever kind of worker they are, teacher, carpenter, culinary worker, whatever it is that they happen to do, and help them to understand what they have at stake. And one of the reasons I think that we're seeing this uh, significant movement of populism on the right is that a lot of those Americans are not hearing from institutions like organized labor talking about the real things in our economy, in our society, that they should be focusing their votes on things like jobs and wages and democracy, both in the workplace and in our society, and how jobs and the environment fit together. I mean, you could go down a long list of the issues that they need to be focusing on, even issues like reproductive autonomy. You know, they're, they're, they're hearing about it, instead of hearing about it from their unions, they're hearing about it from cable television, they're hearing about it from populist politicians on the right, and to some extent on the left, and they're not being led in the right direction in a way that actually serves their interests. Those politicians are going to use them and dispose of them because they don't really, not just literally dispose of them, but dispose of them, meaning not care about them down the line, because they don't need them. They really don't need them. Go ahead, Mark. But there's another dynamic, too, and, and it's, a, it's an optimistic one. Uh, the new workforce is organizing like we've never believed could happen anytime in recent times. The new workforce, the, 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 uh, the Gen Zs, uh, they're, they're coming into the workforce and they're looking for an atmosphere where there is co collective opportunity. That is a vehicle, that is an opportunity. Um, and it's an opportunity to tap into a segment of of society that everybody's concerned about whether they're going to sit down and not vote at all. Secondly, the unions continue to be the boots on the ground. They're the ones that are going to be beating the pavement. They're the ones that are going to be knocking on the doors. They're the ones that are going into the swing states and getting doors slammed in their face and, and still trying to persuade folks. So they're going to, they're still going to be very critical message oriented, Folk, focal areas, 
new frontiers of 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 voters being exposed. So that's that's an area of opportunity. Well, can I just, I just say, I, what, go ahead. I was going to close on an optimistic note. So now the, the <laughs> task for you, Nelson, is keep it, uh, 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 Ruben, is to keep it optimistic. I am. I am going to keep it optimistic because, as Mark said, I wanted to add on to that, that, you know, basically the, the young people are the ones really looking for this change in their workplace and their working conditions. They are also the, the people that President Biden and well, both parties really need uh, desperately to make sure that they get mobilized. Right. So so really um, the, the, the polls that you're talking about in terms of the popularity of unions increasing, it's mostly driven by the younger generation, right? And so I think that is really probably why uh, it's important for the unions and for the Democrats to, uh, and really all, anyone who wants to sort of uh, get that electorate is to show how, what they've been doing with regard to organizing and collective bargaining and the NLRB, for example. Right, very good. So can I just say 67% of Americans overall support, uh, have a favorable view of unions, 88% of voters under the or or workers under the age of 30 are favorable towards unions so you're exactly right on that point all right that's a beautiful setup for your for topic number two ruben and you've got this one and it's the unfinished business of pro-worker legislation go ahead right right well as many of you on this call and of course everyone listening probably hopefully we get some more people who aren't familiar with uh, some of these issues like STEMX and the NLRB, and uh, but uh, anyone who's on this call probably knows about the PRO Act, the Protecting right, the Right to Organize Act, and how it's been languishing in Congress, um, and versions of it have happened or have been introduced before, um, and the most recent version, of course, has languished, uh, certainly with the uh, um, turn, turnover in the House of Representatives uh, to the Republican leadership, but uh, the Senate and the filibuster has, has prevented it from going forward. Um, and it would, uh, in brief, uh, make it just a lot easier than it currently is under our antiquated labor law system to organize a union. Um, it would be uh, swifter, uh, and it would, and if employers engaged in um, retaliation, the penalties would be more severe than they are now. So uh, that's really uh, what a lot of people are pinning their hopes in terms of a, a real upsurge in terms of union density. Uh, again, those of you on this call know that union density in the private sector hovers around seven or slightly below 7% or slightly over 7% in the, and, and of course higher, more like 33% in the uh, public sector, of course averaging out to about 11 or so, 10% in the nationally, right? Which means that nearly 90% of, uh, of the workforce is not represented by any union at all. And yet the, the statistics of course show that um, workers, over 50% of them, want some kind of representation at work, right? And so the, the PRO Act, of course, with, with those numbers, should be uh, the kind of legislation that might get some uh, bipartisan traction, but of course it hasn't, uh, of course, enough to get it over the finish line. So that is, of course, the, the long road or the long history of labor law reform languishing in Congress. But there's a, especially after the pandemic, there's an even greater uh, glaring hole in our social uh, protection safety net, and that is the federal minimum wage uh, being stagnant at $7.25 an hour or since 2009. That doesn't mean, of course, that since 2009, many states, um, uh, both red and blue, have increased their minimum wages uh, over 
725, sometimes uh, almost 15 or over $15 an hour, right? As part of the movement that the uh, Fight for 15 um, started several years ago, finally getting uh, over 15 in many places, many jurisdictions, cities, or, or states, right? So we have, again, some movement in the states, but of course, a lot of protections that are uh, uneven across the country. Of course, so, so the, the need for uh, and the uh, popularity of the federal minimum wage increase is, is not the reason it's languishing in Congress, right? The reason is um, the opposition uh, of many of the biggest interest groups in the country uh, to raising the minimum wage at all. And so we can ask ourselves, of course, why this is happening, uh, particularly when uh, most of the people who are working at the, at the minimum wage or under the minimum wage are women, people of color, immigrants. Uh, and that is pretty much the descriptive uh, focus of my book, uh, Critical Wage Theory, Why Wage Justice is Racial Justice. And that's coming out next year. It's already available for pre-order, but um, the, the book really, again, shows that um, this is having an impact on the most vulnerable, marginalized workers in our, in, our, in our society, in our economy. And what we need to do about it, of course, is raise and enforce the minimum wage, but also uh, to look at other ways in which uh, workers can be better protected um, in terms of a more of a living uh, a living weekly wage or a salary, like, like many of us are familiar with already, uh, the stability of having a, a salary as opposed to an episodic um, hourly wage uh, it really makes a difference in a lot of people's lives. And of course, that's one of the things that I think, you know, one of those pieces of legislation, of course, that is very unlikely to happen anytime soon. But if we did have the political uh, planets in alignment, uh, hopefully would, something like that would be able to come through on the federal level. So that's where we are, I think, in terms of the minimum wage and also labor law reform. Mark, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, watch, watching this thing from from the uh, the cheap seats, I can only say that the frustration and and of course being a a a uh, professor in teaching labor law, I can only say. We keep coming to the precipice, and and things fall apart continually. There were labor law reform efforts made during the Carter administration. There was an, the Obama administration. There's a whole lot that could be said about what could have been done differently in each one of the those circumstances, but it always falls short. The last major labor law reform that took place was the Taft-Hartley amendments that restricted workers' rights instead of expanded them. Um, the, the chance of trying to get the public, because the public, sorry, the, 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 the elected officials in line relative to these things becomes more and more fleeting. I mean, this time it was the filibuster and, 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 um, some Democrats wouldn't even get online with with respect to it. Um, uh, states may be the solution. States uh, that that are progressive in that regard are making inroads, like New York and and, and California. And we we have to look at their, look to their policies and try to sell their policies policies in a way that would favor 
similar legislation in other states. Um, and maybe it has to be built up from the ground rather from the, rather than from from the top. The only other concern I have, though, is a Supreme Court that is using preemption as a weapon. And that's, of course, the topic for another. Right. We're going we're gonna to come to that. Mark, I want to I want to press you on this. And uh, 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 Ruben, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Sort of two topics. Uh, two questions about this. I'm going to sort of yield my time because I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say. And that is, how do you how do you view this fight over preemption? And what Mark was talking about when he said preemption is that the federal courts have essentially said that the National Labor Relations Act, the federal private sector labor law, essentially makes it impossible for states to regulate in the private sector labor law space because it occupies the field. It covers everything, and the state should not get involved because federal law is supreme. But there has been some movement, particularly on the right, but there are some people on the left also talking about this, some of the pro-worker advocates saying, hey, we need to get some flexibility in preemption because federal labor law, in, in our friend Cindy Eslin's famous phrase, is ossified. It's stuck. It hasn't changed in decades. So how do you all view preemption? And that's, that's question number one. Question number two is, um, and I asked this of, of uh, flight attendant president, um, Association of Flight Attendants President Sarah Nelson, and I asked it of our friend Kate Bronfenbrenner, who teaches at, at Cornell, um, teaches and writes at Cornell. And that is, is, is legislation going to precede the growth in union density, or do we need to see dramatic growth in union density before we can get labor law legislation? Uh, Mark, what do you think? And then Ruben. I, I think the the growth in union density has to has to precede it. When when we think about the creation of the National Labor Relations Act, what created the National Labor Relations Act was not brilliant ideas from people people in the legislature. What created it was what happened in the streets, what was happening that was affecting the economy. That motivated action. And this is the circumstance that, that we're coming towards now. The pandemic was just indicative of the sentiments that were being brewed amongst workers because of the, of, of the disparity of income and, and such being brought to a head. Uh, the concern, though, is not just preemption. It's, it's also uh, the withdrawal of deference. So you have a odd dichotomy here. You're saying preemption as a sword is going to stop states from action. And then if preemption is used to pro pro progressively protect workers' rights, then you're going to have a court impose a decision that we're not going to defer to the experts that are within these agencies to administer uh, this law. We're going to take that discretion. We're going to take that choice away from you to ne negate any kind of progressive tool that is being utilized. And, and that, that, that Glacier's case before the Supreme Court was a classic example of I'm not going to. I'm not going to call you an optimist anymore, Mark. Boy, that's really pessimistic. Ruben, Ruben, please. Well, 
preemption. <laughs> and also, I want you to take on this issue of what has to go first. Does the legislation have to go first or does dramatic union density growth have to go first? Sure, I can take both of those. And, and I think that if we have to start with some, some basics here. And again, I hope my labor law students are watching um, and we'll, we'll uh, pay attention to this because... Both <laughs> be requiring them to watch this blog every week. Yes, yes, and download it and retweet it and everything too. Absolutely, but, absolutely. Um, but um, the basic of, of preemption, of course, that I have to clarify from what I said earlier, of course, is that um, the minimum wage is not preempted, right? You know, so, so the federal, right. federal government does something uh, that doesn't mean that the states can't go higher. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, we see in some places that they, they try to go lower, like with the tipped minimum wage. Uh, they try to go below the minimum wage, and, and states have authorized that. Some states, like my own, haven't. But the, the bottom line is there's laboratories of experimentation in the states when it comes to minimum wage. There's no such laboratories when it comes to um, – Union organizing, retaliation for union organizing, private sector collective bargaining, all that experimentation happens in the, in the states with their own employees, not with private sector employees, right? But the important thing to remember about preemption is that it's totally judge-created, right? It's not something that, that Congress, you know, said, oh, we should really have a sort of a federal common law and we should, we should make sure that states don't do anything inconsistent with the NLRB. They can't have their own little NLRB. This is all coming from the courts, right? So the fact is, of course, the courts can, and as we'll talk about in a second, um, change it completely. In fact, as we know, there's a couple of votes in the Supreme Court right now to get rid of preemption, right? And that has, of course, an interesting or could have some, as you said, Seth, could have some interesting dynamics both on the right and the left, right? And uh, more experimentation in certain blue states, more less uh, experimentation in red states. Uh, and yet, even as we'll talk about when we talk about this glacier, the, the iceberg in the, in the room, right, the glacier northwest, um, <laughs> we're going to talk about, you know, maybe that's going to change some things on, on both sides, you know, both for management and labor. Uh, preemption, remember, is something that employers can also benefit from in, in certain instances, right? So it's not just always a, a sword against against labor uh, as, as well. So I hope we, we talk about the kind of the strategic dynamics of the uh, Glacier Northwest decision and other uh, preemption type issues. Great. Okay, let's go to topic number three. Mark, this is your topic, and it's the unfinished business at the NLRB, uh, let me just say for, for folks who want to learn more about where the NLRB is headed, we did a great blog cast with General Counsel Jennifer Bruzzo around Labor Day. Go back and take a look. After you're done watching this one, go back and take a look at that Jennifer Bruzzo uh, interview that we did. Boy, she laid out an aggressive agenda. She's laid out a really aggressive agenda, Mark. Uh, but you think there's still unfinished business to be done. Sure, but uh, you know, I'd like to talk about the victories first, and then we'll talk about the un unfinished bu business. As sure. as the precursor, we we know that that uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, who's a friend of several of us, and uh, came came out of the gate saying, "There's a whole lot that I plan on doing." She issued multiple memos, and and before she issued a memo, uh, uh, Peter, her her her. Uh, the, the her deputy yeah. and then then um uh, acting issued member mos as well dealing peter or dealing peter with or, i'm sorry yes peter dealing with the question of per, uh protected concerted activity which was 
at the core of my concerns when I was on the board, and it's clearly at the core of her, her concerns as well. Uh, her, her agenda has been a, described as ambitious. I was in a panel with management attorney, and they 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 would like to use the word aggressive. Uh, and and so how how much has gotten done, and how much is left to be done? Well, uh, we'd have to say first of all, uh, uh, she took took office uh, seeking full use of the agency's powers. And what she has demonstrated is that that though much of the agency's arms are atrophied, there are still some muscles that can be utilized to to best effect. Uh, and to, to what she has been doing is testing the limits of those tools that, that the NLRB has. Um, uh, and as a result, the board has responded. It has She has gone back to reconsider some cases relative to independent contractors. Super Shuttle has been overturned by Atlantic Opera. And now determining an independent contractor is going to be based significantly on the ability to actually exercise your entrepreneurial opportunity. Um, the uh, the joint employer rule has come about. Um, you don't have to. I don't have to tell you about the joint employer saga that that involved me with 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 the uh, with with Browning Ferris and then it it getting reversed and then the reversal getting vacated and then. That then Brown and Ferris still went up to the the the, the D.C. Circuit, where the D.C. Circuit said, "Guess what? The Obama board is right," and the and the and the Trump board saying, "Okay, yeah, so what? We're going to issue a rule, and parenthetically, a rule that was developed by a board with a member that should have been should have been excluded from 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 the." High brand decision, and yet participated in 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 this rulemaking venture. But you know that's that that's politics. So so uh, that 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 came about, and then um, the the rule the the joint employer rule had been challenged by 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 the S SEIU. Now uh, uh, this new rule came, and you know folks were saying, well, rulemaking is something that the board can do, and maybe that'll stop the policy oscillation. As an aside, it doesn't stop policy oscillation. What it does is just puts more oatmeal into the gears, but the gears are going to still keep moving. And so consequently, in order for the, the joint employer rule that the Trump board issued uh, uh, to, be, to be changed, it had to be changed by another rule that has been recently established. Now that that rule is being challenged, of course, by the Chamber of Commerce in the Fifth Circuit and by the SEIU in the DC Circuit. What? Yes, strategically, both are being racing to circuits that have been sensitive to how the rule, the outcome, the determination of the joint employer standard should come. 
And quite frankly, I think that that will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court with a predicted split in the circuits in that regard. So I could talk more about that, but let's move more on more. What else? What else has happened? You, you had the discipline for misconduct for concerted activity. Fines Alaskamer was issued, which, thank goodness, reversed uh, general motors, which was an overboard one-size-fits-all standard that under the guise of protecting employees from a hostile work environment, effectively muzzled employee voice and totally eliminated situation, circumstances, provocation, all of these other issues that had prompted consideration as to whether or not an outburst makes one lose their protected concerted nature. That has been re restored. Employment policies, work rules came back uh, with in stereocycle, which now states that if you're going to put a policy together, it's the onus on the employer to make sure that the policy clearly does not uh, be reasonably interpreted as to quell protected concerted activity or Section 7 rights. Um, not the employee. The employer, it's the employer that is the author of that, those policies. Now, now, if, if it does, there's a presumption that is unlaw unlawful and a, a presumption that can be rebutted if the employer can demonstrate that this policy has to be written this way for a legitimate business reason. Right. And there's no other way it can be written in order to do that. Well, Mark, um, you know, Mark, let me ask you, uh, so there's, <clears throat> you've gone through a long list and there's more to go through. Right. What would you say is the most impactful policy change? Would you say it's the Semex decision by the board? Uh, this is the decision that says that uh, employers who are presented with uh, a majority of authorization cards by a union that's organizing does not have to voluntarily recognize the union. But if they have a good faith doubt about the existence of a majority, they have to petition the board for an election. So it's a way, essentially, of forcing the employer to choose to go to an election fairly quickly when the employer might want to drag it out as long as they possibly can. It's that... more, more simple than that. The employer doesn't have to have an, a good faith doubt, doubt under, under Semex. Samex is not Joy Silk. Some people are calling it Joy Satin. But what, what Samex <laughs> does is say, say the, the, the union makes a demand for rec recognition. The employer, whether it, it doubts or not, can right. file, file an RM petition. But once they do, then the determination is whether or not the employer, employer is behaving themselves. If it is determined that the employer lead, leading up to or act at the actual election engages in unfair labor practices, the, the board has the ability to issue a bargaining order. So is that, is, would you say that's the most impactful decision we've seen so far? No question. That is a significant game changer with respect to unions' abilities to organize. Unions, now unions will value 
a a certified election. No question that there has been this this fervor to want to protect uh and get a certified uh election and and a board order w- will not give that to them but in the wake of unfair labor practices a board order will extend at least a year under right. under board law and it's going to give these unions the kind of protections that they're going to need and it can risk being extended if unfair labor practices continue. So yeah. the uh, the yeah. opportunity to be able to organize without the fear of losing your supporters through unfair labor practices is a big lift for for organizing. Yeah. So Ruben, I, I want yeah, well, let me so let me ask you a question. You. <laughs> right. Let, let me just let me just give you I ask you a quick question on this question. Uh-huh. So we're ta- we're talking about unfinished business at the NLRB. It, it seems to me one of the biggest pieces of unfinished business is that there are employers, large employers, brand name employers, that once a union gets certified are just outright refusing to bargain, and they're breaking the law. They've been found to have broken the law, and there's no effective remedy. And the unions simply don't have enough power to force employers to the bargaining table with a strike or some other. Do you think that's the biggest piece of unfinished business or is there, is there other stuff that we should be focusing on as well? Well, as I was saying, I can learn so much from both of you uh, on these topics. You have so much experience in the federal government, uh, both of you together. Um, but I have a slight concurring opinion, I guess, with uh, Chairman Pierce uh, in terms of the, uh, the most important development. Um, I, I do think, actually, despite what uh, uh, Mark said about the, you know, the rulemaking process also being subject to policy oscillation, which, of course, it is, uh, we all know, uh, it, it could easily be, as Seth, you're familiar with, from the Department of Labor, uh, you, know, you know, rules done through rulemaking can also be uh, changed in the next administration, so so we don't we won't get away from policy oscillation. But the idea of doing the joint employer rule as a rulemaking uh, this time, uh, even with its delay, uh, its slight delay uh, for the time being, um, I think is is really important because um, just you know in brief, of course, the joint employer rule would um, require many more parties to uh, who are actual employers to engage in collective bargaining than. Than expected to because they were hoping to contract those responsibilities away. And again, the indirect control uh, test uh, that uh, Mark was talking about, again, bringing that back kind of as, as a rule, I think is, is, a, very, is a very important uh, major development in addition to the CEMEX. Um, your, your, Seth, your question about um, will employers continue to break the law even with CEMEX, I think is accurate. Uh, we have examples of that here in, in Nevada, I mean, large employers who have been um, told to bargain uh, with the unions and um, have challenged it and refused to bargain. Of course, they have appeal rights. Um, and that's really, of course, the, the thing that we maybe should be looking at in terms of appeals, uh, you know, having these endless appeals uh, once they are found to be uh, uh, re- refusing to bargain, you know, then we have to go all the way up through the, through the chain again. But the, the fact is, of course, that um, labor laws continue until you have sort of legislative change. We're going to continue to see um, labor law being weak uh, in terms of uh, real deterrence from breaking the law, right? And that, again, is uh, where we are in terms of the politics 
unfortunately, it's not unlikely that we'll see anything like the PRO Act or any major penalties. Um, so it'll have to be, again, through these um, NLRB movements. I, I think we're all aware of where the Supreme Court is, is with the major questions doctrine. I'm teaching constitutional law and, uh, in the spring, and I'm just uh, – the major questions doctrine just comes out of, you know, out of nowhere, basically, and is now a major constitutional doctrine. And, and yet anything, anything we're talking about here is subject to the Supreme Court, just like Glacier Northwest and the jurisdiction of the NLRB uh, is subject to a majority of the Supreme Court. Uh, just like Cedar Park Nursery versus Hasid, uh, what California wants to do with agricultural workers and allowing access uh, for them to learn about unionization, also subject to the takings clause in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court really is kind of hanging over all of these discussions as a, well, what, what, about, what about the Supreme Court, if, even if we get many of these unfinished uh, items at the, late, at the NLRB taken care of. Right. Well, I want to reference back to your point about, both of your points about the need uh, for union density increases to precede really effective pro-worker legislation. If unions had the power to force their employers to the bargaining table, they could do it regardless of what the National Labor Relations Act, the National Labor Relations Board, the courts could say. They could go out on strike. They could force them to the bargaining table. The big three were at the bargaining table. UPS was at the bargaining table. The Hollywood studios were at the bargaining table. The, the Las Vegas casinos were at the bargaining table because their unions had the power to force them there. But there are some unions in our society, unfortunately, that while they are trying, they are organizing, they are building, they have workers who are activists, they are militant, they are ready to go out on strike, a strike might not be effective enough to get the employer to the bargaining table. So I want to turn to bargaining, Ruben, and our fourth topic, uh, and this is going to make my friends at the Burns Center very excited because they're all about technology and artificial intelligence and data and, you know, big data and massive data or whatever it is. So. You wanted, you suggested that we talk about bargaining over new technologies. And of course, when you suggested it to us, you immediately pointed to the recent SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement, the recent Writers Guild uh, collective bargaining agreement, which I think might be the first ever industry-wide uh, collective bargaining agreements to address artificial intelligence. But go ahead, bargaining over new technologies. Well, uh, thanks. And, and again, I, I uh, really appreciate this conversation. I was actually very fortunate to have uh, some union leaders in my uh, labor law class uh, talking about bargaining over technology. My former boss, Tony Siegel at Rothner Siegel and Greenstone, at the General Counsel of the Writers Guild of America, detailer from Unite Here, talking about what they were doing uh, with technology in the hospitality industry, and Nicole Berner from SEIU. And it's, it was just a, a really great conversation about these things that become an issue in bargaining, I think mostly because of the changing workplace that we're all in. I mean, look at us now, we're in a, a you know, a, a virtual room and having a conversation. And so much of our, all of, all of the labor forces um, interactions are on a platform of technology of some sort. So uh, all of these questions that a few years ago before the pandemic about working from an app, you know, become very, very uh, common for many of us, right? And um, again, like you said, Seth, having the bargaining power to get some uh, say and some voice in the introduction of new technologies, uh, to get bargaining over the introduction technologies, which, you know, again, as 
lawyers may know um, there's concern about, you know, whether um, AI could just, you know, do away with a lot of uh, jobs uh, that lawyers are familiar with, right? And and so the, the question really is, uh, how do workers, like you said, Seth, uh, who don't have that kind of bargaining strength, like the writers or the um, uh, culinary workers here, how do they sort of uh, have any kind of say and voice in terms of technology. And it, like you said, it's a long road for many of them to have that kind of bargaining power. But I think that's one of the reasons that many workers are getting into unions now because of the what they see as sort of changes with technology. I mean, it's not a new phenomenon, right? It's, you know, we've always had technology, the internet and things changing the workforce and changing, uh, um, you know, employers' needs for workers. Um, and, and yet, uh, the sudden onset of AI, and I'm not going to go into it, but there's all kinds of you know world-changing kind of ideas talked talked about in terms of AI that really has I think a lot of workers really looking around and saying, hey, if you know the writers or the culinary workers can get some protections against AI, maybe I should be looking at you know collective bargaining, and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. Mark, what do you think? Oh, I I totally agree because. Uh, and and I would throw the UAW strike into that mix, too, because while we're not talking about AI, we're still talking about new technology when we talk about those those EVs, those, those electron, electric vehicles, and how everything is going to be structured differently. This is seminal because uh, new technology cannot be stopped but new technology is going to still need a workforce. And this workforce has to dig, dig in and protect the area and the industry to make sure that its participations, its membership get, get protected and don't lose all that, that it has gained. And that's why, you know, I, of course, full disclosure, my daughter is a Hollywood writer. She was on strike. So, uh, and when she would tell, tell me, well, you know, we can't stop AI. In fact, writers like AI. They want to, want to be able to use it, but they don't want AI to be utilized to erase us and it, it taking the lead in us following. That's, that, that's never going to work. And I, and I applaud that. And a little bit of research that I've done, the irony that I'm seeing is that many labor disputes uh, involving AI are going to arbitration, and there's introduction of AI into the arbitration process. <laughs> so how freaky is that? Yeah, I I. I, I want to agree enthusiastically with what both of you said and see if I can't add one or two ideas to it. One is that technology is not by definition a labor replacing tool. Uh, some employers use it for that purpose. And in some cases, things like robotics have become labor replacing. And certainly the way the studios were talking about using AI would have replaced writers, it would have replaced actors, and it would have resulted in job loss. But I remember all the predictions that were being made about the internet and about autonomous vehicles. And you could on a long list of technologies that did not result in massive job loss. What they did result in was disruption. Some jobs were lost, but 
many, many more jobs in a lot of cases were gained. And so one of the questions that has to be answered with the introduction of new technologies is how do we ensure that workers benefit from the technologies are not merely displaced and disrupted and impoverished by the introduction of technologies? And my argument, and I know that both of you agree with this, so I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, is that collective bargaining is the best tool for accomplishing that result. You know, and I say this as a longtime government guy, right? I've served in three presidential administrations, been in government for back to the 90s. Government is a very blunt instrument that doesn't take into account the fineries, the, the nuances of particular occupations, particular workplaces, but collective bargaining is able to do that. You can have experts from both sides, the worker side and the management side, coming together and collectively solving problems and reaching a better place together if they have that kind of a bargaining relationship. What happened in Hollywood was the opposite of that. It was one side trying to cram technology down the throat of the other side. But when both sides are willing to figure out how technology can make everybody better off, the result is going to be more productive for everyone. And you're not going to have a bunch of Luddite, simple, simplistic solutions from one side and a bunch of exploitative, oppressive approaches from, from another side. So, Mark, I'm going to give you the last word because we're coming to an end. I promised an hour. We're coming up on an hour. But, Mark, I'm going to give you the last word here before I wrap up. All, all I just want to do is say that we can't forget that there is an underbelly and an underclass in AI and in technology as well. There are still going to be workers that have to be doing the work. Uh, I read an article about workers in, in, in Africa who are involved in, in making determinations as to content for, for these social media giants and are forced into horrible working conditions where they're constantly exposed to in, inappropriate stuff that is affecting them psychologically and whatnot, and they're not allowing them to even unionize. So I, so you're still going to have worker abuse, not worker, not necessarily worker replacement. Yeah. Uh, can I just say you've completely devastated your reputation as an optimist with that final comment. You were supposed to lift us up and ennoble us with your closing comment. But <laughs> nonetheless, a great, I knew it would be a great conversation bringing the, my two old friends together for this uh, terrific talk about uh, workers, worker power, collective action, unions, technology, politics. I mean, it's just, it's exactly the kind of stuff I want to be talking about. Ruben Garcia, University of Nevada, Las Vegas School of Law, the W.S. Boyd School of Law, Mark Gaston Pierce, former chair of the NLRB, now at the Georgetown University Law Center and the Workers' Rights Institute. So grateful to have you here. Let me just say a couple of things to our audience before I let you go. The first is, these blogcasts are available as podcasts on the blog, on the Power at Work blog at poweratwork.us, but they're also available on every commercial podcast provider, uh, Spotify, Google, Overcast, uh, Apple Music. You can find it there. So don't try to watch us in your car, for goodness sakes. Download the podcast and listen to us as you're traveling. You know, we just passed a holiday. We've got a holiday coming up. Download a bunch of our podcasts so that you can listen to them 
as you're traveling. The other thing I would say is please subscribe to the blog and we will send you every week the weekly download, which is a collection of a couple of dozen news articles, uh, news articles, academic studies, videos, opinion pieces, things from across the web about workers, worker power, collective action, and unions. You'll even see these two guys' names pop up in the weekly download every now and then when they're feeling uh, the spirit moves them to write something. Um, so subscribe, you go to the front page of the blog, go down to the bottom, give us your name, your affiliation, your email address, and we will uh, send you the weekly download and subscribe you, keep you updated on all the new content we have here on the Power Work blog. Thanks again to Ruben and Mark. Thanks to you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you again back here on the blog very soon.